A malevolent force is at work in the swamp, a force whose sole intent is to affect the death of old Ezekiel Tork and his dog named Dog. Now that enigmatic amorphous evil has seized control of the marshland serpents and slithering, hissing, they converge from all directions on the human, canine, and the macabre man-thing. Hello everyone and welcome to the Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. I'm Paul Matthew Carr, your guide to the weird, the wacky, and the often wonderful of a 70s swamp-based monster comic. Today on the program, Man-Thing number 10, No One Dies Forever. This is the long-awaited conclusion of the Zeke and Maybell ghost story begun in the previous issue, and gall dang, it may not come out the way you'd expect it to. So, full disclosure, everyone. I was supposed to release this episode months ago, uh, but then I got sick, uh, my personal life uh, fell apart a little bit, and uh, the world exploded. All of this was quite unexpected. And I'll be honest, in the wake of a global pandemic and historic massive protests against systemic racism, I was reluctant to record anything. Uh, I started to think that this podcast was a bit frivolous in the in the shadow of such serious times. I doubted if my voice was needed or if there was any value that I could add. But after careful consideration and discussion with friends, I came to the conclusion that, no, this podcast will not change the world. And I don't think it will add anything meaningful to the important conversations that are happening at this time. But perhaps... I can distract from the stresses around us and maybe give a respite to the horrors that have befallen our country. That being said, I would be remiss if I didn't state for the record how I feel. And I don't know, uh, maybe I'll lose a few listeners because of it, and if that's the case, well, so be it. I stand with the protesters. Black lives matter. Justice and equality are basic human rights and should be given to all unequivocally regardless of how you look, or, or, or who you love, or, or where you live. We must stand up, stand together. Now is an unprecedented time to reach out and help others be treated fairly, and with compassion, and with love. And by doing this, we will make ourselves better. We will make ourselves better people, and our country a better place. I'm going to put links in the show notes to various charities and organizations you can give to or, or maybe volunteer for. This is a momentous opportunity for change, and I'm hopeful that in the aftermath of tragedy and violence, we shall know peace and justice for all. Thank you for indulging me, and so now it's time to start getting back to what I do best, procrastination. No, <laughs> no, that's not right. Uh, what I mean is talking about a Swamp Monster comic. And by talking about a Swamp Monster comic, I mean, of course, I'm going to spend the next 10 minutes or so discussing a counterculture agricultural movement in the 1970s. Because what did you expect? Uh, actually, it's going to tie in seamlessly to the comic. Trust me. <laughs> I don't have much of an introduction plan, so I'm just going to jump right into it and talk about today's topic, the Back to the Land movement. I just can't figure out why the Swamp would turn again me. Shucks, I've been getting along friendly-like with it for nigh on twenty years. Ever since Maybell and me left the city to come and live out here. Them was great days for us too, you know. We was happy then. We both had our fill of city life. Wanted to get out and find some place that wasn't in such a blamed hurry. All we wanted was to be together. To be in love. 
away from folks who had nothing better to do than to pry into others' lives. It took us a while, but we finally found the spot, away from just about everything, and that's where I built us a home. Built it with my own two hands, just for us. The Back to the Land movement was one where folks, unhappy with crowded urban life, made the conscious effort to move to a more agrarian way of doing things. A self-sufficient lifestyle that often involved communal living that was simple and sparse with less reliance on technology. Now, if you think this sort of thing sounds like something that began in the 1960s with all them dang hippies and their free love and smoking funny plants and such, uh, you'd be forgiven. And while the movement is associated with the 1970s, to get to the origin of this phenomenon, you have to go back quite a bit further, several decades in fact, all the way back to 1854, to the publication of a little book called Walden, or A Life in the Woods. Written by Henry David Thoreau, this book chronicled the time spent living in a small cabin near Walden Pond in Concord, Massachusetts, for two years, two months, and two days. A passage from the book describes what he hoped to achieve. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, to see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I, I assume that's what he sounded like. <laughs> uh, Thoreau then goes on to describe, in great detail, the ways in which he lived, simply and self-sufficiently, and how this experience accorded him independence and gave him time for self-reflection and introspection. If you've never read Walden, you should. Uh, it's quite an amazing little book, actually. To be fair, there are swaths of the text that can be tedious to read, like when he describes his accounting and finances. But I, I don't know, if you're into that sort of thing, I guess, like if you're keen to know that you should expect to spend $3.14 on nails when you build a shack, well, more power to you. But I'm more interested in his philosophical musings, his descriptions of nature that are, at times, beautiful and truly moving. One passage reads, We must learn to reawaken and keep ourselves awake, not by mechanical aids, but by an infinite expectation of the dawn, which does not forsake us even in our soundest sleep. I know of no more encouraging fact than the unquestionable ability of man to elevate his life by conscious endeavor. It is something to be able to paint a particular picture or to carve a statue and so to make a few objects beautiful, but it is far more glorious to carve and paint the very atmosphere and medium through which we look, which morally we can do, to affect the quality of the day. That is the highest of arts. That's good stuff. And if I'm being honest, I'm also being a little self-indulgent here because the Back to the Land movement wasn't technically started with the publication of Walden. And again, to be honest, in the mid-1800s, the majority of people were already living on the land, so there was not a real reason to get back to it. But that was soon going to change with the increase of technology and with growing cities and the rise of urban life. I guess basically I really like Walden and I just wanted an excuse to read it again, and so I wanted to throw it in. But if you want to get to the true origins of the Back to the Land movement, or at least the seed of the idea that would become the Back to the Land movement, you have to look to the 1930s. You see, at the time, the Great Depression was causing a bit of a problem. There was poverty and scarcity, and people were understandably looking to find alternative ways of doing things like, you know, feeding oneself 
and various educators and theorists at the time were attempting to convey different ways to the masses to become more self-sufficient, the most prominent of which was Ralph Brasotti, who was described as a practical experimenter, which is a lovely little term. I would like to be a practical experimenter at some point. May even change my job title to that. Regardless, Brasotti lectured and taught about the practicality of simple living and modern homesteading, and he's often credited as the progenitor of what would eventually be called the Back to the Land movement. And so at this time, you begin to see the rise of rooftop gardens and vacant lot gardens, communities taking over unused areas in the cities and planting crops, little community farms that would allow families to provide for themselves and become at least, in a modest sense, self-sufficient. This would continue on and grow throughout the war years, and by the end of World War II, this idea of providing for oneself and divorcing yourself from modern society really began to take hold, and a certain segment of the population took the logical next step, and that is to leave city life and move to a rural one. That segment of the population being middle class and affluent white people. Now that's not a criticism. Uh, wealth inequality is not an argument I'm going to make here. That may be a discussion for another day, but this was the late 1940s, early 50s, and those with the ability to simply up and leave their current lifestyle and head off into the wilderness to start a farm were by and large white, college-educated, and somewhat well-off. You can see this conveyed in various memoirs and accounts at the time, a popular and influential one being Helen and Scott Nearing's Living the Good Life, which depicts the couple's ascetic life in rural Vermont, growing their own food, making their own clothes, and selling homemade maple syrup and blueberries they picked for their income. And although it's not mentioned in the memoir, I can only assume the pancakes were amazing. Also, in interviews promoting the book, the Nearing said that they were heavily influenced by Thoreau's Walden. Boom. Tied it in. And over the next decade or so, there continued to be small but significant groups of people who decided to eschew the modern consumeristic way of life for a simplistic agrarian one. And then we get to the mid-60s, and the rise of the counterculture, the hippies. And that's when this whole thing really begins to find its footing in popular consciousness. I suppose I don't have to mention that hippies really like communes. It was part of the whole idea. Tune in, turn on, drop out. And dropping out meant leaving the rigid, capitalistic, for-profit life for a community of folks living together and working to benefit one another through mutual understanding and compassion. Now, regardless of what you think of hippies and how you view them, the idea, the ideal of living and working together, sharing one another's burdens, living simply and treating each other equally and with respect, it's a pretty noble idea. Didn't always work out that way. Oftentimes these makeshift communities fell apart, sometimes pretty drastically, uh, but that doesn't mean that the idea wasn't sound. It should also be noted that it wasn't just hippies doing this sort of thing. There were religious and spiritualist groups attempting something similar. Uh, these typically ended poorly as well, but for different reasons. And now this brings us to the 1970s and the true back-to-the-land movement, which lasted from about 1970 to 1974. These dates are, of course, subjective. Uh, the self-reliance begun in the 1930s combined with the living simple ideas of the 50s and the hippie communal living of the 1960s, all of this combined to produce an actual movement. Young Americans wanting freedom and peace, a life without constant reminders of war and political division, seeking a better life without complications. They set off to the farmlands and to the mountains and woods to build a home, to grow their own food, and to just live, live deliberately 
to front only the essential facts of life and to see if they could learn what it had to teach. And many did this armed only with a copy of the Whole Earth Catalog, a handful of supplies, and a boatload of gumption. Sadly, many also did this without things like farming skills, or knowledge of carpentry, or a plan. But they did it. And soon, secluded plots of land were tilled, and geodesic domes dotted the landscape. Just so, so many geodesic domes. In her book, We Are As Gods, Kate Delos chronicled the disparate experiences of individuals and groups from New England to Northern California to the deserts of the Southwest to the swamps of Florida. And if you're interested at all in this subject, this book is a good place to start because you really get a sense of the, the joys and the beauty of this lifestyle, but also the hardships and the isolation many felt. Farming is hard. Living without access to medical care is hard. And when you're accustomed to modern conveniences, Giving them up is hard. And yes, I'm simplifying things for the sake of being brief, but it was a difficult way to live, and many failed. Many put in a valiant effort, but the realities and the difficulties proved to be too much, and the majority of the back to landers simply gave up and went back to normal society, and the movement ultimately died. But it wasn't in vain. Many of the skills learned during the time spent back to the land led to an increased desire for sustainability, organic growing, recycling, composting, Basically, the green movement started here. In many ways, its legacy still lives on. On a personal note, in the 1980s, there was a kind of hippie revival of sorts. Uh, this was in part due to a reaction to Reagan America and a nostalgia for older music and counterculture and whatnot. Well, I was part of this. And, uh, and by part of this, I mean I, I grew my hair, I wore tie-dyes, and I went to Grateful Dead shows. But... <laughs> But this also took the form of uh, some minor activism. Part of being a pseudo-hippie was attempting to be politically active. Now, I was pretty young, uh, but still, the people I knew when I hung out with, we would circulate petitions to, to save the rainforest or promote AIDS awareness, that sort of thing. I don't know how effective we were, but we tried. And the Back to the Land movement was something that we talked about, and it enamored me personally. I never did it. <laughs> I mean, I never had the fortitude to up and leave. I mean, I guess I love my technology too much, and the idea of giving up my Atari or TV was just too much to bear. But I knew people who did, at least in an 80s or, I, at that point, 90s version of the Back to the Land movement. And still to this day, I know people who live very simple lives in upstate Vermont, in Humboldt County, California, in the mountains of Colorado. They're not exactly off the grid, eh, but pretty close to it. So it's still a thing. The Back to the Land movement hasn't gone away, not completely. And I think there's a good possibility, if the world continues to move in the way it has been, we may see a resurgence of people getting back to the land in the foreseeable future. All of this is to say that when I read the backstory of Zeke and Maybell in today's story, I had a bit more sympathy for their situation and empathy for the difficulties they went through. There's more to this story than ghosts and monsters. For emotions reach him on a level few humans can understand. They touch him as if they had substance. And each emotion's touch is different. The sheer hatred from which this demon is fashioned, for example. To him, her very presence feels like a thousand tiny needles driven one by one into the palms of his hands. In short, it is agony. And as he learns abruptly, it cannot be halted by physical means. 
It loops and swirls about him, feeding on his suffering, rejoicing in the feast, until it can consume no more, at which point it explodes upon him like a glutton's gaseous gut, hurling back all the torment it has absorbed, redoubling his anguish in a single burst, and he cannot even give voice to that terrible suffering, for he lacks the apparatus with which to form speech. Man-Thing number 10, Nobody Dies Forever. Cover dated October 1974, it was written by Steve Gerber, art by Mike Plug, inked by Frank Chiramonte, colored by Linda Lessman, lettered by David Hunt, edited by Roy Thomas. Deep in the swamp, Man-Thing holds Ezekiel Torque's unconscious body limp in his massive hands while the dog, Dog, howls his discontent at the dozens of possessed snakes that converge around them. And then the snakes are upon him. Man-Thing is covered with squirming serpents that entwine his limbs and burrow into his body. He gently places Zeke's body in the crook of a tree for safety, but is soon overwhelmed by the sheer number of snakes. He loses balance and falls into the murky water of the swamp. A lucky thing, because Man-Thing does not need to breathe, but snakes do. When he rises, snake-free from the water, he sees a hideous sight, a gorgon, created from the mud and clay with real snakes as hair, and with the face of Maybell Torque. The gruesome creature vows to haunt Zeke till his dying day and kill the dog, Dog. But Man-Thing pulls a small tree from the mud and beats the mud gorgon till it explodes in red vapor. At that very moment, Maybell Torque sits up in her deathbed, very much not dead, she remembers, as if in a dream, the haunted tree, the gator, the skeletons and snakes, and realizes it was all real, and it was she that was causing it. Regretful, Maybell crawls to the door, wanting nothing more than to find Zeke and warn him, but collapses in exhaustion as red vapor leaves her body. Back in the swamp, the three unusual companions, Man-Thing, Zeke, and the dog, Dog, sit by a fire to recover. Zeke starts to reminisce him. Back when they were young, Maybell and Zeke were in love, and got tired of modern life, and set out to live away from the city in seclusion, but all was well, until it wasn't. They grew apart, and when Zeke found a hound dog puppy in the swamp one day, Maybell became jealous, and afterwards, always, well, she hated that dog. His story done, the trio set off on their journey, and eventually come to a truck stop at the edge of the swamp, where Zeke is ridiculed for asking for a nickel to use the payphone and the locals really rather overreact and attempt to kick him out. But Zeke has backup. Man-Thing steps in to make sure Zeke's request is granted, and after making a call to the doctor, the three make their way back to the hovel, where they find Maybell unconscious on the porch and a ghostly apparition floating above her. The apparition attacks, and Zeke asks why is it trying to kill him, and it turns out it's not. All it wants is to kill the dog, Duck. The apparition is pure rage and hate, the jealousy of Maybell Torque personified, and it's all directed towards the dog, Dog. Man-Thing attempts to step in, to protect them, but the awful emotions are too much for the empathic creature to endure. In anguish, he collapses in a heap. Zeke moves to comfort the now-conscious Maybell, while the apparition morphs into a demon-looking thing. The embodiment of Maybell's hate and jealousy, it moves to strike, but Dog is there, leaping and fighting the demon thing, attempting to protect them. But the demon kills Dog with a single swift motion. Then, the demon apparition, its task complete, vanishes, laughing maniacally as it does. Maybell, 
Her evil emotions gone cradles the body of the dog dog, feeling regret for what she felt, what she had done. And as the doctor arrives to see the Maybell, Manfing stumbles back into the swamp. What is that, that thing, Mr. Torque? Ah, he ain't no thing, Doc. He's a good friend of the family, same as Dog was. Yeah, I know he ain't a human being, neither was Dog, but let me tell you something, Doc. Neither one of them had more soul than ten people I know. Well, the first thing we need to acknowledge before we begin is to recognize and applaud the true hero of this story, Dog the Dog. <laughs> he is kind, considerate, he protects and defends all around him, even those who want to do him harm. He's selfless, he's brave, he's noble, and basically, he's a good boy. In other words, he's a dog through and through. I mean, put a cape on that hound, because he is the real superhero of this story. The opening of the story picks up exactly where the last issue left off, with hordes of snakes attacking Man-Thing. And it's pretty overwhelming. And it's pretty overwhelming for Manny. In fact, Man-Thing gets his butt kicked a couple of times in this story. But the snakes crawling all over him and wriggling inside him, it's, it's, it's nasty, it's creepy. Uh, he only escapes by accident, really, falling into the water and drowning the snakes. And then the Gorgon, the Medusa, the, the Maybellusa. <laughs> Forget I said that. But the Gorgon rising from the mud with real snakes slipping through the ooze to become her hair, that's a, that's a striking visual. It's a cool idea. And Plug really nails the art in this issue, taking wild, off-the-wall concepts and depicting them in a, in a dynamic and interesting way. Plug is really, really good. And then in the aftermath of the battle, it becomes a little road story. Zeke, Dog, and Man-Thing have some travel time to get to know each other. It's a nice, quiet moment, and we get to hear Zeke and Maybell's backstory, which is a succinct representation of the hardships of getting back to the land. It's short, only a little more than a page, but Gerber really does capture the hope and idealism that people set off with, uh, and then the realization that sets in that this will not be a simple, easy life, that there will be toil and hard work and sacrifice. And Maybell devolves quickly into this wretched, bitter, deeply unhappy person. She stays not because she really wants that life anymore, but because of Zeke. And when Zeke finds someone else that's willing to be his constant companion and will happily endure the life they choose, uh, which, you know, is Dog, she throws all of her hatred and resentment onto Dog, uh, making him the receptacle of her own self-doubt and the embodiment of everything she doesn't like about her life. It's actually a bit of subtlety by Gerber, well, as best he can manage in a Swamp Monster comic at the time, but he doesn't have Maybell say outright that she hates herself and her life and is projecting her self-loathing onto the object of Zeke's affection. It's a rare case of showing, not telling. Uh, for the moment, anyway. There's, there's got to be plenty of telling later in the story, but, you know, credit where credit is due. The trio then makes it to the truck stop on the edge of the swamp. Remember that truck stop on the edge of the swamp? Yeah, neither do I. <laughs> this is another example of the swamp of requirement. Uh, the Nexus will provide, my friends. I mean, it does make sense. There was an airport being built and loads of construction workers and, you know, there must have been supplies being trucked in. So yeah, a truck stop would be needed. But 
it seems pretty remote and, you know, seriously, who would go there? Well, truly awful people, obviously. I mean, Zeke is in distress. That's pretty clear. And they mock him and bully him for just not knowing how much a phone call costs. As an aside, remember payphones? Yeah, payphones sucked. But... It is quite nice when Man-Thing steps in to play bodyguard and how quickly the bullies become rather helpful once a giant uh, swamp monster steps in. Funny how that happens. But now we get to the real crux of the story. The three make it back to the cabin and they find a now-repentant Maybell lying prone on the porch with a malevolent spirit hovering above her. It's not quite clear what and how this spirit demon thing came into being, was it a manifestation of the evil hanging around the Nexus? Was it magic? Is Maybell a secret witch? It's not really explained, but in all honesty, it doesn't matter. I think Gerber's going for more of a metaphor here. Hate, jealousy, despair. These are negative emotions that, when left to linger and grow, will haunt us. They become our demons. They will lash out and hurt the ones we love in horrible and violent ways, often without knowing that we're doing it. All of Maybelle's resentment towards herself and towards Zeke become manifest in this demon, and the demon takes out its punishment and revenge on the one thing Zeke loves, the thing that she sees as her replacement in Zeke's affection. Dog. It's unfair and unreasonable, but hatred isn't rational. And then comes the really incredible scene, uh, a part of which I read out at the start of, at the, start of the synopsis. It's where the demon attacks Man-Thing and overpowers him. Man-Thing is defeated, not by force, but by overwhelming negative emotion. Hatred destroys him. It burrows into him with more ferocity than a thousand snakes. Jealousy eats away at his insides and fills that void with sickness and filth till it explodes with violent upheaval. This is not subtle. This is a very obvious, straightforward message. Negative emotions, hatred, jealousy, fear, resentment will bring us low, will defeat even the strongest of us. I think this is something many writers after Gerber miss or downplay with the character of Man-Thing. Man-Thing is, at his heart, an empathic creature. Yes, he's big and gloopy and intimidating and strong, but his strength, his, his real strength, his superpower, is his ability to feel the emotions of others. Without this, he would just be a thing lumbering around the swamp. He wouldn't get involved in any situation if he didn't feel what others feel. But he does feel. He empathizes with others on a most basic level. Zeke was in distress, and Man-Thing felt that. He knew someone needed help, and he acted. Not because of some moral obligation or creed or philosophy. He helped because it was the right thing to do. He acted out of instinct. In stories past and stories to come, the character of Man-Thing is compelled to help. Because when you feel for another, when you put yourself in that other's place, when you allow yourself to feel that other's anguish and hardship as if it were your own, you can do nothing else. You must help. You must do everything you can to relieve that pain, to eliminate that suffering, to make the other's life, the other's struggle your own, and do everything in your power to make it better. Even if it's hard, even if it hurts to do it. And sometimes you might not win, but that doesn't mean it's not the right thing to do. That is the power, the superpower of empathy. This story and the character of Man-Thing have much more to give us than simple fantasy escapism. And that's the beauty of this comic, and that's the beauty of this series. But in the end, the people are saved by the bravery and loyalty of the true hero of the story, 
Dog. Dog defends to his death the ones he loves, and even the ones who wanted to hurt him. And the shocking thing is, they lose. The demon does what it sets out to do. It achieves its terrible goal. And in the aftermath, Dog dies. Man-Thing is left shaken and broken. And deep in the swamp, two people must come to grips with the devastation all around them. Maybe they will. Maybe they will learn from this horror. Maybe they and their world will be a better place in the wake of tragedy. Okay, that's it for today. Thanks uh, for listening, everybody. Got a little heavy there at the end. I realized that. But next time, we'll have something a bit lighter, because next time on a brand new episode of The Nexus of All Realities, it's a twofer. I'll be discussing Man-Thing's appearance in Daredevil issues 113 and 114. These issues have Black Widow and Gladiator and Deathstalker, and I get to talk about Daredevil, which is always fun. These issues are also written by Gerber during his rather interesting run on Daredevil, so I'll be talking about that, among other things. Uh, Also, there will be one, possibly two, bonus episodes coming up before that, so, you know, keep your eyes peeled for those. Also, also, I've been doing some revisions to the Nexus look and feel. I've created a new episode artwork, a new logo, and I've added a resources page where I'll be putting a list of books I use to prepare for this thing that I do. And if you're interested, you can check that out. Uh, In addition, I'll be putting links to any articles or websites I use in preparation as well. In other words, I'll be sourcing all this stuff I talk about, you know, like a professional or something. I'll be attempting to put this up in a timely fashion, but... You know, timeliness, not really my strong suit. But again, thanks for listening, everybody. I do appreciate all the feedback and encouragement and general camaraderie. So please, leave a comment on individual episodes or send me a message on Twitter, at Nexus of All. I really do love to hear what you all think of the show. So until next time, to you, my dear listeners, I say this with all humility and sincerity. Keep it swampy. You've been listening to The Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. The Nexus of All Realities is a Daddy Elf production. Man-Thing and all related titles are copyright Marvel Comics, and no infringement is intended. The show can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And if you head on over and leave a review, I'd appreciate it, and I'll be your best friend. You can contact the show via email at nexus at daddyelk.com or online at nexusofallrealities.com and leave a comment on individual episodes. You can also connect with the show on Twitter, at Nexus of All. The Nexus of All Realities is for entertainment purposes only. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained?